Welcome to the Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's new interview series with Australians on solutions to Australia's economic problems. My guest today is the economist, the outspoken economist, John Adams. Welcome, John. Hey, man. How are you going? Very good. And what we're going to discuss today is the financial power bears its teeth to the Australian people. So, John, let's, we've, got a, we've got three main subjects we want to get through today. We're going to talk about bail-in. We're going to talk about the cash ban. And then we'll, we'll talk about the turmoil that's going on behind the scenes in the gold and silver market because that has big implications for the, the global financial system. But we're doing this in the context of a lot of pretty dramatic events happening in the, um, uh, in the government around the issues that we've been raising um, uh, in parallel. You've, you've been doing a lot of work on these issues like the cash ban and bail-in, as have we, and it's getting some pretty extraordinary responses. So let's start with that um, on bail-in. Right now, the government... Treasury and the bank regulator, APRA, are trying to pretend um, or, or they're trying to get away with pretending that deposits can't be bailed in while doing everything they can to stop a very simple amendment to ensure that they can't be bailed in. So looking at the inquiry we've just participate, well, we're still participating in, John, has the inquiry, in your view, proven that the law is unclear? Um. Well, uh, what I would say is prior to the inquiry uh, to uh, all the analysis that I have done and uh, I mean, we've had multiple discussions with, with the, the Citizens Party and obviously I've done a number of shows with Martin Law. Uh, I think what we established before the inquiry that there was uh, legal doubts, uh, potential legal loopholes. It wasn't uh, crystal clear as to what the status of deposits were. Uh, and obviously the uh, legislation that Malcolm Roberts, uh, Senator Roberts put forward was to um, effectively, uh, you know, put a caveat to say that you can bail in. So, 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 so just to get the basics straight, everyone concedes that bail-in is a legitimate uh, tool that is in use in Australia. The, the question is, can um, uh, bail-in be used for deposits? Yeah. So uh, I think I acknowledge and, and the government acknowledges that bail-in of hybrid securities is on the table. Um, and I think the investment community, particularly the institutional community, all know that that's on the table. So the question is specifically about deposits. And obviously, Senator Roberts's bill um, makes it crystal clear that deposits can't be touched. Um, uh, that is apparently what the government has been saying publicly for the last two years, that um, ever since the uh, they passed the uh, Crisis Emergency uh, um, uh, Act back in 2018, given uh, the Citizens Party campaign, they tried to um, quash the suggestion that deposits could be touched just like in Cyprus. Um, and yet we have, an, uh, in my view, an inconsistency between the, the uh, assurances of the government and APRA versus the status of the law. Um, and what I think the inquiry has revealed is that um, they are doing everything they can to stop a simple amendment which would make the law crystal clear as to that deposits can't be touched. And I think their actions and their tactics speak volume as to what's really going on. If they were genuine in their position, uh, wouldn't it by any measure be easier just to pass the bill and satisfy the whole public to that effect? Absolutely. So, so the question that the government and APRA have not answered is, um, 
they have come out and said that this legislation, this proposed amendment by Senator Roberts is unnecessary. This is their language. Um, but what's the consequence of passing the legislation? Um, you know, there is, you know, from my reading, and obviously we've seen uh, Robert Butler uh, come forward and, and a whole bunch of other people, um, uh, there is no consequence to passing the law. So if everything is as they say, pass the law and we can all move on. Um, and obviously we've seen, uh, you know, former leader of the opposition, um, John Hewson, come out on Twitter saying that, that, that this is a no-brainer. Um, uh, and we've had a whole bunch of other people saying that, you know, um, if, if what the government says is legitimate, um, there should be no reason why you shouldn't pass the law. So, uh, yeah, so I think, I think the government has not answered um, why, won't they pass, why won't they pass the law and what's the consequences of passing the law? Because if the consequences outweigh the cost, oh, sorry, sorry, if the consequences outweigh the benefits, then you can argue that, that it's a bad law, don't pass it. But there are, no there are no negative consequences to passing it. So the fact that they're trying to do anything and everything they can to stop its passage, um, that, that, that is saying something to me. Um, and and, and, and that, to be honest, that's what I expected. So I expected that they, the establishment would put up roadblocks. Uh, and and you know, I've said this publicly. So my view is deposits are on the table. That's why I've, I'm, I've withdrawn from the banking system largely in terms of my life savings. Um, um, and, and if the government wants me to put my life savings back into the banking system, um, you know, just clarify the law. But, but, but that's, they that's obviously really, won't do that. That's a very good point. That's a very good point because you say they could pass the law and move on. It'd be more than moving on. They would have the, the immense benefit of having parties like the Citizens Party, people like you, people like One Nation, which is very well known. All known, I mean, One Nation and the Citizens Party and others are known bank bashers. It would be incredible pub PR for the banks to have us say publicly, your deposits are safe because this bill has been passed. Why wouldn't they want that at a time when um, there is a record low level of confidence in the banks, right? This is gold for them, yet they're still knocking it back. And that tells you something about what their intentions are. Um, well, you... well it, so, so uh, I just want to say, Robbie, so, so, so I think the audience needs to distinguish, you know, the interests of the bank uh, in terms of the commercial banks versus the interests of the government. So, so bail-in is, is designed to limit the financial exposure of the taxpayer to um, bailing out the banks. Um, um, and, and, and so the, so, so I mean, we've seen the Australian Bankers Association, um, they have said it's unnecessary, but um, that, that they have said that if it is, um, you know, uh, if you think it's necessary just to, um, uh, uh, you know, um, try to calm everyone down and to make it crystal clear, then the banks have no issue with the passing. So, so, so the banks, I don't think, oppose the legislation per se. Um, the issue is in terms of the government. Um, and the, the key point, again, that the government won't address is they signed an international agreement vis-a-vis -vis the G20 the, the Financial Stability Board key attributes. Uh, key attribute 3.5 talks about bail-in of creditor claims. Uh, deposits are creditor claims. Um, every other government around the world who signed that communique is saying deposits are on the table. And for some reason, the Australian government has a different interpretation. Well, that, that, that to me sounds extremely fishy. And um, you know, we've been going back and forth with the committee about hearings. Um, and, I, and I think the reason why hearings are critical is because um, APRA is sending, uh, they've sent two letters to the committee uh, uh, with answers to questions on notice. 
those answers are incomplete. They, they, are, um, uh, they are an attempt to misdirect attention to some of the key critical questions. Um, and, and obviously some of the questions are, you know, in terms of um, why is it that Australia has a different interpretation of the FSB key attributes than everyone else? That's one. Um, um, what are the consequences of passing the law? Um, what, you know, why do you oppose it? What, what, what negative consequence would it mean to the banking system if you did pass it? Um, and obviously the most critical question is, um, so my, my view on bailing of deposits is it, it, is, it, you know, it is the last option. So that, I think they would do anything and everything to avoid it. But if they must, I think that they will. Um, and, the, and the question is, if they burn through all the bank reserves, if they bail in hybrid securities, um, um, and if the bank is, uh, sorry, if the government and the RBA is unwilling to write an, a blank check and they're still short of capital, well, where does that capital come from? Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's the key question that APRA has not answered and has not given them the, 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 you know, the credit, the, the banks and the market and the, and the rating agencies any guidance on. Whereas at least with New Zealand, New Zealand has been completely transparent in saying that you know, bailing of deposits is on the table and that is how we will resolve any capital shortfalls. And yet APRA, uh, I mean, I was just um, speaking with a, with a banking expert a couple of weeks ago when we were uh, dealing with the ABC about, about these submissions. And uh, some of these banking experts have said that, that this is the key question that APRA uh, and the banks in particular have not uh, provided any guidance to the market on. Well, if there is a shortfall of capital and you burn through everything that you admit can be bailed in, well, what's next? Um, and, and, and again, and, and I think that's a key question that the, the, the parliamentary inquiry and the Senate, the, the Senate committee should actually get an answer on. But the issue is, is the question is, is the committee taking the inquiry seriously? Are they asking the right critical questions? Um, I dare say that they don't understand this issue um, as well as you or I or Martin North um, or Robert Butler would. Um, and, and so without an inquiry, so without a public hearing where we can actually pose a series of questions to the committee um, to get to the bottom of what's really going on, I, I think that they're running, running the clock out and well, we're not going to actually... Those are, significant, those are significant questions coming from you because, of course, um, as a former Liberal advisor, you've had experience in the Senate. Um, how do you assess the behaviour of the Senate committee, especially the Secretariat, in this stage of the inquiry with what their, this, this um, one-sided uh, dealings they're having with APRA to get APRA's uh, position, which they then publish up on their website but you can't see the other side of the argument. Do you think that's appropriate? Um, so in terms of the committee, um, so um, I would say that my reading of the whole process is the senators from the major parties are not taking this seriously. I don't think they uh, treat, take the issue of bailing of deposits seriously. I don't think they take Senator Roberts seriously. I don't think they take the community concerns seriously. What you, what you mean um, is they take Treasury's word for it. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I probably would say two things. Yeah, um, they would take uh, APRA and Treasury's assurances on face value um, and they won't question it. Um, the other thing is um, they don't understand this issue. They don't understand the law. I don't think they've looked into the, the, the issues at play. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things I've, I've picked up as I've been um, dealing on, on, on this issue of bail-in is to actually get to a firm understanding about what, the, what is this all about, you've got to go into the weeds. 
So you can't just take a superficial view of, of um, in terms of it happened in Cyprus, it could happen here. You actually have to go through a series of technical documents uh, you know, in terms of, say, the FSB or the IMF documents where the, the IMF actually said that Australia should have a statutory bail-in regime, or looking at um, the status of Commonwealth law. Um, and obviously, the, the key thing that the committee didn't do in 2017 was, well, what, what power would APRA have under the law in different circumstances? Now, when you do, when you try to think of in this circumstance or that circumstance, uh, what would happen in the banking crisis and what power does APRA have? People call that a conspiracy theory. Um, having been a former management consultant, that's not that, that's not conspiracy analysis. That's scenario analysis. Um, and you know, uh, management consultants get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to sit down with banks and work through scenarios and say, well, if you face this uh, circumstance or that circumstance, do you have a plan in place to actually deal with that? Um, so, 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 so that's what we're dealing with. And the key scenarios that I think um, uh, that are unclear in terms of what the government would do, um, the law says to me that they have more power and more options than what they're letting on. Um, and, 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 and probably to, to, to some extent, they can't disclose what's really going on. Now, New, New Zealand has, well, the, New Zealand's a very interesting case. New Zealand is completely transparent. Uh, in terms of the central bank, they say on their website, no, but deposits are on the table. They can be bailed in. And you, yet you go talk to the average uh, bank staff in New Zealand or, or the average bank depositor, and they have no no idea as to um, what's going on. So and you also have a transparent the, Also, bank. the New Zealand government is not as transparent as the New Zealand Reserve Bank. Indeed, indeed. But but so, so here's where the media is so critical. So the public rely on the media to 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 interpret the actions of the government and to do, and to disseminate and to simplify those actions into um, you know, into sound bites that the public can consume. Um, and particularly on this bail-in issue, neither has the New Zealand media nor the Australian media done this uh, done this um, topic justice. And a lot of people are flying blind. And so, obviously, when Nassim Kadem at the ABC did this story um, about the inquiry and about the submissions and and, and all the uh, things that are happening um, around this issue. Uh, I thought that was quite important because uh, the ABC has a huge voice and a huge platform, and uh, you know it, it was important that this issue uh, was you know it, the the seriousness of the issue was was raised um, um, to the attention of the public, and uh, a lot of people um, you know were able to learn more about this subject uh, compared to being in, in complete darkness. Well, you know, John, what goes into behind the scenes trying to get publicity for this issue? You've done it as much as anyone in the last two years. Three senior people have now weighed in to confirm that the law is either unclear or explicitly deposits can be bailed in. They are Nick Hossack, the former policy director of the Banking Association and a former advisor to John Howard, John Hewson, the former Liberal opposition leader, and now the um, economic editor of the Australian newspaper, Adam Crichton, how significant do you think those three people and their views are will be to where this debate goes? Um, to be honest, I, I, I suspect that the parliament will just ignore them um, and, and they'll just keep on relying on Treasury and Apple's assurances that there's nothing to see here. Um, um, yeah, so, so the fact that uh, Crichton in particular went on national TV with Alan Jones and saying that the deposits... Now, here's the thing. So Crichton basically had the same formulation as the Europeans. The, in Europe... 
um, uh, they admit in their documentation that what they call uncovered deposits, so deposits above the insurable amount, that is uh, that can be bailed in. Um, so uh, Adam Crichton went on uh, national TV, I think this week or last week, and said that deposits above 250000 can be bailed in um, um, and that the bank should admit that as well as the government. Now, uh, so, so I thought that was important that at least some of the mainstream media are saying that in their view that what we've been saying is true. Yeah. Although the, the issue with Crichton is, is that the law, uh, as I read the law, and I think as Bob Bailey reads the law, is um, there is no guarantee that, that bailing would happen just above 250000 um, The way the law reads is APRA has absolute discretion to bail in in terms of whatever amount. And, you know, and, and I think that's an important point because in the last couple of weeks I've had quite a few people call me up and, and, and pose the question to me is, if a bail-in was, was to occur in Australia, what rate and what level would it cut in at? And all I can say is, you know, is that, well, a couple of points. The first one is, is that the initial proposal in Cyprus was they wanted to take a haircut from every deposit. And then when the riots and the protests started, that's how they came up with the formulation of um, 47.5% above 100,000 euros. But on the other hand, um, you, you know, it, it really depends on how short the, the bank is in terms of its capital. So if it's short uh, you know, a few billion dollars versus $100 billion, um, that shortfall has to be met by depositors. And um, it really depends on the bank's circumstances as to what formulation they come up with. So who knows? Maybe in some circumstances, a bailing above 250 would be enough. In other circumstances, they may have to go even lower with a higher with a higher percentage. Um, so, so that's obviously unclear. Um, the other, the other, the other, I think important point to, to note is, is that when bail-in happened in Melbourne in 1892, well, all of the deposit was bailed in. So yeah. just because um, in Cyprus they did it at 47.5%, I mean that's no guarantee that it, whether it's Australia or whether it's another country around the world that they bail in at a at a higher percentage. Just underscoring that what you're saying there, one of the what we know from um, when we hear analysis on bail-in and so-called modelling that people have done, it never takes into account the unknown associated with derivatives. And because when, when derivatives go bad, the liabilities can get very big very fast. And that's why we're saying don't even assume that the, the so-called deposit guarantee will apply, let alone how the mechanics of it work. But, John, thinking tactically now, um, uh, it, the next step that people should be... Uh, fighting for, as we've called for, is, is actually public hearings because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a slog to, you know, to, to progress this idea. If we can get public hearings, the next sitting of Parliament has been cancelled, but if we can actually get public hearings, um, anything may come out of those like, like happened in the cash ban, right? Yeah, yes. Although, so we're recording, Robbie, today on the 31st of July. Yeah. The, the inquiry is supposed to report back to the Senate on the 10th of August. Now, um, it is it is true, like you say, that the the sittings around the tenth of August have been cancelled, but the committee has not extended the life of the inquiry. So, um, you know, we're, so I, I guess probably a little bit nervous that um, uh, so Chairman Brockman and the others are going to run out the clock, um, and they're just going to write a inquiry report based on the submissions received to date and based on the. Um, uh, answers to questions on those from APRA and the Treasury submission, and, and that'll be it. Um, uh, and, and it will be a question of uh, there is nothing to see here. So um, I, uh, I, I did actually email the Secretary and I actually asked for a right of reply to, uh, to, uh, to respond to the government's claims because I think a lot of them are bogus. But 
I haven't been uh, granted that uh, uh, that I haven't been granted that opportunity. Um, and uh, and so yeah, so um, we have we have ten days, and 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 so without uh, some sort of confirmation from the committee, um, it, it, you know, uh, perhaps our dash has been done. Well, that said, let's not give up until that's um, set in stone. So um, for the viewers. You, you can go to our website, see the instructions there, see the names of the, and numbers and emails of the committee members. Call them, email them, demand a hearing. If you know, you never know. Sometimes this this the uh, the overwhelming heat that they receive makes them think, well, maybe we better do that. Um, and if we and if it happens, it can go anywhere, because it happened with the cash ban, which is what I want to move to now to to uh, discuss with John. Um, uh, John, let's just talk about the. The, the, um, the, the general state of, of the push for a cashless society in the context of the pandemic, because one thing we know for sure about the pandemic, the banks have used it to really push their agenda through uh, further and they want a cashless society. That's absolutely clear. Um, yes. What do you think, now given that, where do you think we're at with the government's cash ban law in that context? So... Yeah, so obviously we had the inquiry last year, late last year, and, and the, the beginning of 2020. Uh, your audience would know that I had the opportunity to testify to the committee at the end of January. A report was handed down. The report said to par- to make a, several amendments to, to the proposed legislation and then pass it. Um, then obviously COVID-19 happened, um, and we still we haven't heard a peep out of the Assistant Treasurer Suka. So um, uh, I probably put out something on social media about a month ago. Um, I did uh, email uh, Suka uh, and I called his office, spoke to uh, his staff, and they basically said that the Assistant Treasurer, Assistant Treasurer is still um, considering the recommendations of the inquiry report and will come back uh, and make some sort of public statement in due course. Well, when's due course? Uh, they said, we can't tell you. Is it uh, six months? Is it 12 months? Is it 18 months? Who really knows? Um, so we're pretty much in a holding pattern. So uh, the proposed legislation, the currency restrictions on the use of the cash bill 2019, it's not dead, although it's not, uh, well, it, it's still on the books. Um, and, and there's no guarantee that they're going to do it. Um, so we're, we're a bit of a limbo. So um, I did have the opportunity to speak to uh, an official in Treasury, just to get a sense as to, well, what are they working on some sort of response to the inquiry or are they working on amendments? And um, uh, they pretty much were, I think, were focused on COVID-19 and, and they were just saying, well, we're waiting for government to make a decision. So it really comes up to uh, SUCA. Um, but I think that on these key issues, which I think uh, uh, myself and Martin North and you guys and others have been central to raising the profile of, I mean, we're, we're really exposing you know the the hidden hand of of political power and how that interacts with the financial system um so uh so, yes so uh, yeah i mean if they pass this legislation i think that's going to give them grief um and we've made a song and dance about it and i think we've highlighted the political risks around the cash ban to the government so you know, i'm hoping that you know the status quo remains and that this doesn't become the law and i should say that on on bail-in is that Whereas with a cash bill, if they pass it, it will do them political damage. If they don't pass the, the proposed legislation on, on, on to stop bail-in, I think um, that will 
um, uh, that will cause a lot of damage because sure. because because we can say we had there was an opportunity to put this issue to bed and the government refused to do so um, and, and and you know the question that ultimately comes is do you, who do you trust do you trust the government do you trust the banking system um, and, and I and I dare say that um, trust in politicians uh, bureaucrats as well as with um, in terms of the banking system, trust in those institutions is has plummeted, um, and, uh, and 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 so yes, yeah, so I, I think politicians should do everything they can to uh, to a, a reaffirm trust. Um, uh, but not sure if they've got the message up there in the elites. So, so you could say that we we are doing our best to help them here, right? We're we're giving them one bill that will, if they pass it, will help their reputation. We're giving them another another chance to drop a bill which will help their reputation. So we're doing our best for them, right? We're, we're very well-meaning. Of course, what's inexplicable if you're not prepared to look at the, the reality is that why would the government knock these opportunities back? Because, of course, um, this goes to the heart of how financial power works, which is why we're calling this, you know, the financial power bears its teeth to the people, right? This is, there's a reason for these, for these laws. Um, but I think... Um, you, you and I uh, publicly expressed slightly different views on the cash ban issue in the last uh, few months. And if I can express it, it's more like we both know the glass is where the water levels at the glass. You're, you've, you've been slightly more pest, pessimistic seeing it as half empty. I've seen it as half full in the sense that um, you, know, you, you, you emphasise we can't trust the government really, and we certainly can't. But on the other hand, we have done an enormous amount of work here. And Every time this comes up lately, there's such a huge public reaction. I think it sends a message. So you had an example of that this week with, with, with um, Westpac Bank. Just explain um, that quickly, how, how that came about and the reaction that got Westpac's attention. Sure, sure, yes. So, so there is a document that's been published by Westpac in which they say that they are no longer taking deposits in cash. Um, um, and, and, and they've got a bit of a timetable to say that, um, the, you know, um, that for, I think from the 1st of July, they won't take cash above 7,500 and then they won't take cash at all and they won't take checks and anything like that. So uh, someone sent me a screenshot. Um, I was quite shocked by that. I posted it on social media. Um, and used uh, my standard provocative language to get people's attention. Um, and that went viral on the internet, and a lot of people called up Westpac and said, what's going on? Um, so Westpac did actually respond to my tweet. Yeah. And yeah. what they said was, so, so Westpac do take deposits for other financial institutions, and that language was, uh, that, that, that is in relation to um, you know, Vic Bank and a whole bunch of other institutions that, that deposit directly into Westpac uh, accounts. So, so far, they're saying that if you're a Westpac customer, um, you can, uh, I mean, there are no restrictions around depositing cash, but if you're a non-West Bank customer, um, we're, we're not going to take your cash anymore. So um, it was good to see Westpac respond. Um, and obviously social media can be quite effective to get people's attention, um, you know, particularly if you know how to use social media in the right way. And um, But, uh, but uh, as you know, we, we use social media a lot, but there's very few issues like this one to make something go viral. And that, that itself sends a message to the banks and to the government, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. So, 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 so I think uh, political and economic freedom um, and, and how cash can facilitate freedom, uh, that's a very sensitive issue for a lot of Australians. Yeah. So a lot of Australians uh, believe that we are free, want to be free. 
Um, there's a multiple conspiracy theories surrounding the internet about the cashless society and that this is a, going to be a mechanism to implement um, a, central bank, a central bank digital currency, social credit scores, um, the bureaucrats in Canberra basically um, uh, trying to restrict access to capital and to bank accounts if you do things uh, inconsistent with the edicts of the government. So um, there are some Orwellian nightmare scenarios that people are proposing um, and, and, I, and I should say that, you know, you know um, the trend that we're seeing would, would support concern that we are headed towards some sort of Orwellian totalitarian system. And obviously the government can move quite rapidly to, uh, to basically quash any, any notion of that in Australia and to reestablish trust. But um, uh, I dare say that when it comes to the, to the financial system, the, bank, the parliament's not sovereign and the financial system and those that run the financial system actually control parliament and the politicians. And, and, and I just want to come back to the cash ban just on, on a small point, and obviously not to disagree with you, Robbie, but my Fair experience in parliament, having worked in parliament and having worked around, having surrounded these politicians for quite a while is um, when federal politicians or even state politicians and politicians, when they want to kill an issue, when they want to sort of, um, you know, when there's speculation in the media and they want to kill it, they're very good at ruling things out straight away just to ensure that, um, you know, that the issue goes away and the, and, and the, um, the, the media starts talking about something else. So um, the fact that, so if the government wanted to, to sort of kill this issue of the cash ban, um, they, could have, they could have come out straight away after the inquiry and saying, well, um, we've, we're not going to proceed. We've killed the issue. We're moving on. Um, it doesn't have public support um, and we're going to tackle the black economy in a different manner without, without this particular measure. Uh, well, the, the fact that they haven't done that um, says something to me. So um, they, they are more prone to ruling things out when things get politically sensitive um, if they don't want to proceed with something and they've ha they have the opportunity even today to, to rule out the cash ban um, and the fact that they haven't, I think people should read between the tea leaves on that. So we stay alert. That's the uh, the lesson to draw from that. All right, John. Just quickly, let's let's discuss this uh, this turmoil in the gold and silver markets. Um, you're a well-known gold bug, uh, whereas um, as we discussed privately, I'm I'm more of the view that you can't eat it. But nevertheless, what's happening at the moment is fascinating because it has implications for the whole global financial system. So just tell inform people briefly what's going on, and we can draw it out a bit. Sure, sure. Um, so. We are seeing uh, gold and silver prices going up uh, now, um, and gold in Pretty the last fortnight has, uh, has hit an all-time high in US dollar terms. It's getting quite a bit of attention. Um, uh, so, so probably a couple of points to make is um, there's a lot of Australians out there now buying gold and silver, uh, and obviously I'm involved in the bullion industry, been in the, in the industry for a couple of years, and a lot of people come to me to, to, to get access to, to gold and silver because people are losing confidence in the monetary system. People are losing confidence in terms of the banks and the, 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 the safety and security of their deposit, particularly around issues like bail-in and negative interest rates. But also people are losing confidence in the purchasing power of the Australian dollar. So let me, a classic example, and I met someone here this morning in Sydney and I, and I gave this analogy. So the year's 2020 now. Um, 20 years ago, if you were in Sydney and you bought an ounce of gold, you'd spend about $250 uh, 
um, uh, and, uh, 250 Australian dollars to buy an ounce of gold. Well, today you're going to spend about $2,700, dollars um, So the price has gone up tenfold in 20 years. So, so why is that? Is gold more valuable? Or, or, or is it that the purchasing power of the dollar has, has plummeted in 20 years? And the reality is, you know, that the, that the dollar, so all of it, so this massive global debt bubble, this massive domestic debt bubble, it's, it's, it's been facilitated through massive amounts of money printing, credit creation, um, and that credit creation has lost, uh, has resulted in the dollar losing value. Um, uh, and, and that's obviously why gold has gone up a thousand percent in 20 years. Now, obviously since COVID-19, and the lockdown, uh, we have seen unprecedented amounts of, of monetary and fiscal stimulus around the world. Uh, why is that? Because um, we had this debt bubble and it was about to implode. And in order to save the financial system, they, they thought they would just try to inject all the stimulus. So particularly in the Australian context, uh, I think your viewers need to understand, well, what's the, what's the purpose of the stimulus? The purpose of the stimulus is to ensure that those with mortgages don't default. Yeah. Because if people default, we're going to have an, an Irish housing crisis where housing could fall anywhere between 40 to 80% and, and, the, and some of the banks could be threatened in terms of their solvency. Yeah. And so yeah. the whole point of all, all of these sort of um, uh, unprecedented measures um, that has been implemented by the Morrison government is to effectively keep the banks alive. Um, and to keep the banks alive, you've got to keep the housing market alive and, and stop people from defaulting uh, because... Um, Australian banks have have a uh, significant overexposure to the, to the housing market and the mortgage market uh, compared to some of their international counterparts. But for a long for a long time, though, despite all those factors and despite the demand for gold and silver that you saw personally, there wasn't a corresponding change in the price, and suddenly that's changed. And what what do you think's going on there? Well, I mean, thing yes, so. Um, one of the things that Australians have very little understanding of is, is that the gold price and the silver price is heavily manipulated. So when people look at, at the price on the screen, um, some of them think that that is the fair market price. Um, and particularly on silver, it is nowhere near the fair market price. And so there has, so now on my website, adamseconomics.com, I've written a number of, I've written this year six detailed articles about the silver market in particular. And one of the articles explains who determines the price of gold and silver. Um, and we get into the um, London spot market that, that, that's being run by the LBMA. Uh, and then you have the futures market with COMEX that's, uh, that's operating in New York. Um, and there's been some huge turmoil there. So um, basically we've got a massive Ponzi scheme where they're suppressing the price by, by flooding the market with all these uh, sort of short contracts. Um, uh, um, and in March, so in February, we had this run on toilet paper in Australia. Uh, in March, we had a run on bullion, uh, not just in Australia, but worldwide. Yeah. A number of these uh, international players went to London using these, um, um, what they call exchange for physical contracts. Uh, they went to places like HSBC and said, this contract says I'm entitled to receive gold. We'll give them the gold. Well, the reality is what happened was that HSBC didn't have the gold. They had to go, so effectively, a, you know, you could say a technical default, but in order to fulfill the contract, they had to go to the open market and they had to uh, uh, buy gold on the open market, which was a price uh, much higher than the uh, exchange for physical contract price. And that's how HSBC lost $200 million in a day. And I think we're going to put up an, Im an a image 
from Bloomberg. So Bloomberg has reported that HSBC yeah. lost $200 million a day, and there's a Canadian bank that lost $63 million in a day. Um, so all of this, so, so that, uh, so those massive losses um, that happened on the 23rd and 24th of March, they're the beginning salvo of this manipulation scheme sort of uh, coming to uh, an end. Um, and what we've seen since then is that uh, more and more uh, turmoil has happened in this uh, COMEX uh, uh, futures market. Um, um, so, so we are seeing record amount of uh, parties asking for physical metal that they don't have it. Um, and so one of the reasons why the price in, in the last month in particular has gone up 30% for gold and silver is, is that in order to entice people to sell gold and silver so that these uh, banks can get the metal to fulfill these contracts, the price has to go higher because at um, uh, say $1,700 an ounce US, no one's enticed to sell. Um, or in terms of silver, silver was like $18. Um, and no one was enticed to sell silver at, at that price. And so in the last week, it shot up all the way up to 26. And I think, you know, as, as of this recording, we're at about $23.5 an ounce US uh, for, for an ounce of silver. And um, so as we go forward, if the unprecedented record amount of demand for silver and gold continue um, uh, in order to ensure that the entire uh, COMEX doesn't collapse, they'll have to allow the price to rise. Now, what does it mean for these banks? So there's, so there's a number of them. Um, so, so they have a number of these banks and there's about eight of them where they have concentrated short positions. So they, they have these huge contracts which, which are placing uh, huge pressure um, on, the, uh, on, the, on the gold and silver market and for the price to be suppressed. So when the price goes up, uh, what it means is that those banks holding those short contracts are losing money because to, to settle those contracts, um, the, the, they have to go buy. Uh, uh, they 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 have to buy gold and silver at the current market price, which is more expensive relative to the to the short contract, and then they make a loss. And so the more the price goes up, the more these banks lose. And there's various estimates as to how much these banks can lose. It could be um, for every dollar that the price goes up, it could be a quarter of a billion dollars. So we're talking huge amounts of money. Um, um, and, and obviously the the um, Kind of like with LIBOR, the 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 amount of the the scale of the scam has just become unprecedented. So, um, so yeah, so um, uh, we could see some dramatic moves in the gold and silver market, and that would have huge implications for some of the banks involved in this manipulation scheme. But it also will have, I think, huge implications for the the broader monetary system. And um, well, when and, you see and, and, when you see turmoil, when you see turmoil that you've just described and these very dramatic movements. Um, in the um, and affecting banks the way it, it has the eight banks you talked about, this has huge implications for the again the derivatives market. It's a quadrillion dollars tied up in the derivatives market of all kinds of derivatives, um, and when things go wrong in there, then the losses can just be you know astronomical. Um, Absolutely. And yeah, these are the these are the things that we have to keep an eye on because they relate to the the true stability and soundness of the financial system. Why they want policies like bail in and therefore need cash bans to lock us in banks so we have to stick, you know, we can't avoid bailing or escape bailing. Um, and uh, we're keeping a close eye on it. As, you, as the viewer can tell, John's monitoring it very closely. The Citizens Party is monitoring this stuff very closely. And we need to be aware of this so we can stop the bad policies they're putting through in order to fight for the good policies that can actually um, 
uh, bring some order to the system here, such as the, the policy of Glass-Steagall separating the banks, protecting deposits that way, etc., that the Citizens Party um, stands for. Anyway, John, I think we've, um, we've run out of time there, really. We've, we've, we've done very well. Thank you for joining us today, putting aside some time to spend with the Citizens Party. Um, despite the circumstances of the coronavirus pandemic, you look like you're in a slightly better part of Australia than we are. Um, <laughs> but I, won't, I won't get too jealous. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining the Citizens Party, Citizens Insight Show, mate. Thank you.